Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hi Sue, thanks for taking part at Stem Cells at Lunch Digested. It's a pleasure. Um, I would like to, to first ask you, um, you said you are now looking to get your PhD. What has been your career path so far? My career path uh, since graduation from medical school, right, um, so I was a King student before, so I did my medicine in, uh, at Guy's King's and St. Thomas and graduated in 2008, and since then, as the medical career ladder is very structured, so you may or may not know about this, so very briefly, you have the foundation year one and two, that's where you experience a bit of um, all the different specialties in medicine, and I've done that uh, in the UK. And then I took one year out to do a bit of research and a bit of locum during that year. And then that's when you decide whether you want to be a surgeon or a GP or a physician or you know other specialties like uh, accident and emergency. And I decided on doing medicine. So I did the core medical training, so those two more clinical medicine for two more years. And then after that, I did uh, my research, my clinical fellow job in dermatology at St. John's Institute of Dermatology. And from there, Professor McGrath's group sort of recruited me to join the research group. And uh, I went for the interview, and since then, that was two years ago, I've been doing this clinical research fellow job in genetic skin disease, and here I am. That is fascinating. So do you interact with patients? Still, do you have a clinic where you have patients, or are you just doing research? So at the moment, because of the nature of my research, which is clinical trials, you know, phase one, uh, safety study, first demand study in gene therapy. So I do, I have to, by nature, I have to have contact with patients because we recruit patients onto the trial for the research. So yes, I do have a clinical contact, but also I do help out when they need with the clinical, the, with the clinics and the, the you know, the, the clinical aspect, so to speak, yeah. I found the job that you're doing with the clinical trials for epidermolysis bullosa fascinating because it's a job, it's, um, it's a disease that has no treatment so far. Um, what, what drove your interest in working with these patients? Why am I interested or what, what is my interest? Why are you interested? Why am I interested? Well, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the job, you know, in life, generally, you can't plan everything, and sometimes the job chooses you. So I joined the group about two years ago, and also before I joined the group, I did my fair share of research and trying to find out what the aim is. And I strongly believe in the ethos of what the group is doing. And as you may, I'm not sure whether you were at the talk earlier, but you saw the the severe end of the spectrum, which is the recessive aspect, uh, type of the EB. And you can see the, you know, when you meet these patients, they're truly inspirational because they're living literally with a timer, a lifetimer. Um, 
you know, they have a very limited lifespan because eventually they die of skin cancer or infections. And when you meet these patients, they're incredible. The resilience that they have and their outlook to life, and some are advocates and some are actually spending their life in, you know, volunteering and just, you know, we moan about a lot of things, but the resilience and the inspiration that you derive from these patients is in incredible. And I do believe that once the cure is found, which hopefully we will get to one day, we're still at early stages, then there are other similar diseases that you could apply to in terms of the, the principle and the technology, hopefully. So the clinical trials you're running now on the cell therapy, you're using self-inactivating virus. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see, do you see a role for CRISPR technology in there? Or mm. what, would, what would you like to have to treat these patients? Uh, yes, you're right. That's a very good question because there are already a lot of groups in the States, in America, as well as in the UK already uh, working on the gene editing. So as you said, the CRISPR is one of the tools that they use to edit the gene. So the trial that I'm doing is the gene replacement. So instead of, um, as, as uh, the analogy that we always use, so for example, in a micro... In a novel, there is a typo error. You don't just, you know, replace the whole book, which is what we're doing with the gene replacement. So you replace the whole book just because of an error in a sentence or a paragraph. But gene editing is more precise, where you just go into where the typo error is and correct it. So yes, there is a lot of, um, you know, room for that technology to be there. But I think at the moment we're still at cell and also possibly mouse stage for these things. So uh, for gene replacement therapy, we're at clinical trial stage. But for the others, we're still at earlier stage than the trials now. But eventually you would need all these various avenues to, to get there. When you're recruiting patients for the clinical trials, yeah. do you recruit on the more severe cases or for the initial phase, do you try to get moderate cases? So, yes, yeah, so this is another uh, interesting question because even within uh, the spectrum of RDEB patients, there is quite a difference in severity. So, for example, generalized severe type, subtype of patients have much more severe, you know, ulcers and erosions, whereas generalized intermediate have less severe. So for gene therapy, what we're doing is the initial safety study to inject the gene-corrected cells in the intact skin so that we can monitor the side effects better on the intact skin as opposed to wounded skin. So in that sense, we need a balance, really. Um, so ideally, with less severe end of the spectrum. But uh, what's more important is patients' willingness and the fact that they have, you know, the, the amount of collagen 7 in their skin to begin with. So there are a few other criteria that we fit. So if most of them are met, then we recruit them. 
you're focusing on collagen 7 A1 mutations. The reason is because it's the most frequent one, or do you have another reason to pick that one? Well, uh, the reason is because collagen 7 A1 is the the gene that is uh, that is you know the fault in this gene is ultimately responsible for RDEB, which represents the most severe end of the clinical spectrum of EB. And also the technology has already been uh, sort of developed before I joined the group. And of course, in any case, it is equally important to focus on less severe patients, which, you know, which is important for their quality of life. But with RDEB patients, these are the ones who usually succumb to squamous cell carcinoma at young age. So there's more of a urgent urgency of the need for this patient cohort. Do you see any space for artificial skin to play a role in the treatment of EB patients? Or your where do you put your your best bets for the for the treatments? Artificial skin. What do you mean by that? If we could generated if, from if in the lab we could artificially mm -hmm do the epidermis mm -hmm. and the dermis and then the junctions that you're trying to mm -hmm. induce by the cell therapy, do you think you could apply that to the patients and would it stay? I guess the challenge would be rejection. So if you're not using the patient's own skin cells to generate, so as in my talk I spoke about using the patient's skin cell and extract the top layer of the skin, skin cells called keratinocytes, and then gene correct these cells and then graft them back. So that's been done already. So what you're saying is that the skin graft will be from somebody else or using some other cells. So the challenge will be the immune reaction against these cells because this will be regarded as foreign. Is there a role for that? If we can circumvent that, then possibly. But we have, at the moment, I think... Um, more sort of, um, how can I put it, more uh, conducive and more efficient ways to to uh, treat it, if that makes sense. And assuming you are in phase one now, assuming that this goes well, when can we expect, if everything goes to the plan, that's <laughs> not always the case, what is the, the best, the optimal timeline you can envisage to find a treatment? To find the treatment, my goodness, you're talking about not just finishing this trial, but to find the treatment. That's very ambitious, and of course we have to aim there. Um, <laughs> I can talk about when this trial, um, well, hopefully we, you know, we, if all goes well, then we need to go through phase two, phase three, and then phase four. So as, as you know, even just to get the approvals, it took about a year. So you can do the math. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Wow, that is, it's impressive.